Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Now, joining me today is definitely a top performer, a high performer, in my opinion, in many ways. Uh, so joining me today is Mr. Coot Blackston. He's an incredibly charismatic individual, and when I mean, he's just absolutely uh, engaging to listen to. He is a, a, a visionary, a transformational teacher, uh, and he offers a fresh, bold look at spiritual awareness for a whole new generation. But it's so much more than that. I think the the interesting piece that I really tuned into while talking with Coot is that. His message is applicable for all genders, for all walks of life, from people all over the world. It has to do with purpose. It has to do with meaning. It has to do with how we walk through this life with our family. Uh, so he was born in Ghana, West Africa, and his multicultural upbringing as a child of a Japanese mother and Ghanan father has <laughs> has spanned four different continents and his unique lineage lay the foundation for his approach to breaking down barriers and unlocking an individual's true gifts and greatness. So his journey is just incredible. I won't necessarily give away too much uh, more of his bio, but what I will say is he's been featured on platforms like Larry King. He's been featured in Forbes and New York Times, and uh, he's truly done some amazing things. He wrote a book called You Are the One, and that book has done incredibly well. Um, he's, he's very poetic. He's very charismatic speaker, but really on this one, we dive into his personal journey and story. And he talks about being by his mother's bedside 17 months ago, she passed away. She battled with cancer, uh, and, and really tuning into how powerful surrendering can be in our lives and how much of our dysfunction in life comes from our, uh, need and our clinging to trying to control the things that we have no control over. And so Kud is able to break down how we can start to embrace surrendering to the things that are out of our control so we can focus more intently and more fluid, fluidly uh, on the things that matter most to us, on the gifts that we have to give to the world. And really what we talk about in this episode can be distilled down to meaning and purpose and direction and love and happiness. And you can hear in Coot's story and in his teachings that the power that surrendering can offer if we allow it. And it's such an interesting topic because I know for myself, for a very long time, <laughs> the idea of surrendering uh, was really something that I resisted. And I had, you know, a real huge focus in on trying to control and man not manipulate, but really trying to control all of my surrounding environments, all the things that were in my life that, uh, you know, I, I felt a sense of safety in that control. And I think, you know, over the last few years, the more that I have surrendered to the things that I don't have control over, the more that life seems to unfold organically. I, I seem to have found a way to uh, ride the wave 
of flow, ride the wave of life. And it comes through surrendering. And you may have read the book by Michael Singer, which is all about surrendering. It's called The Surrender Experiment. And and I believe that Kud is actually working on a, a second book um, that might have something to do with this topic. But uh, this is going to be uh, a really, it's a phenomenal interview. And his story is quite profound. So if nothing else, you'll enjoy his story. But hopefully you tune into the deeper message and the deeper philosophy that he is offering on this show today. So without any further delay, uh, please welcome Mr. Coot Blackson. All right, Coot, thank you so much for joining me on the Man Talk Show. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's great to be here, man. I've been uh, looking forward to it very much. Yeah, likewise, likewise, brother. So um, I have so many questions and, and I'm excited for this one, but I'm going to start off uh, with, with the people's question, <laughs> which is, which is uh, tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. You know, I have so many defining moments, man. You know, it's not like there's like one. It's each moment has defined me at different moments of my life. Whew, I mean, I could talk about my background. You know, what one immediate that, that's more, uh, it's less about my story and how I got to be who I am, but it's more a defining moment in the last couple of years. Uh, my mother passed away uh, 2017, I think it was, so about... 18 months ago from this conversation. And you know, that was a hugely defining moment. I was very close to my mother. Her and I were very close. She was like my best friend growing up and she really raised me. And so I had a deep, profound connection with this amazing woman. And it was really defining because I found out uh, about two years ago, two and a half years ago that she had cancer. You know, we, she tried to fight it. She did chemos, but it was a defining I'm not saying moment, it was defining year, because from the moment I found out, I realized I had very little control, and any control I had was just an illusion, even though we think we're in control, we're really not really in control, <laughs> and the bottom line, we're all going to die at the end of the day, you know, no matter how much kale we, we eat, and smoothies we drink, and, you know, supplements from freaking Iceland, or the Tibetan mountains we eat, or yoga we do, we're going to die. So at the end of the day, it's, it's a, a realization of how raw and fragile and vulnerable it is to be a human being and to live this life despite all of its ups and downs and messiness with an open heart. And so uh, I got to spend a year with this amazing woman who was my mother. And, you know, I live in L.A. and I was flying back and forth literally to be with her every three weeks you know and it was defining in that I got to just sit in chemo sessions with my mother and as they pumped you know this sort of I, I want to say toxic stuff through her veins and and just held her hand and we got to talk for eight hour sessions eight hours straight no break you know I hadn't sat with my mother uh, for that long since I was probably eight years old and I got to just be with her and talk about nothing Everything and nothing, ordinary stuff, the weather, the, the foods she liked, favorite memories, and just seemingly meaningless stuff that was ordinary, but extraordinary in the face of this could be the last moment. And so every moment was defining because every moment I had with my mother didn't know if I'd get another moment. Every conversation I'd have, this could be the last conversation. Every voicemail she would leave me was like, 
this could be the last time I hear her voice live, you know? And so it really brought front and center to my awareness, the, the reality of death and the preciousness of life and got to spend some amazing moments with her. For me, one of the most precious moments was when after about six months, seven months of chemo, the, the doctors actually told her, and I learned so, I mean, it just blew my heart wide open. I learned so much being with her because I asked my mother in this process, are you afraid of dying? Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid, you know? And she looked at me and said, I'm not afraid. I know that I'm not, I mean, it's easy to read this stuff in a book or, you know, be all spiritual enlightened on a yoga mat when everything's fine. And, you know, you just had a you know, nice salad and, you know, you just got money in the bank. But when you're about to die and lose everything, including yourself, that's real. That's real spiritual practice. And so I asked her, are you, are you afraid of death? And she looked at me without a blink and she said, no, I know I'm not just this body. This body is a temporary vehicle which I'm using, my soul is using, my spirit is using to, to function in this reality. What I am is eternal. And so mm. I'm not really, I know what I am will not die and I will be here, you know, in some way, form of consciousness forever and we'll be connected forever and our journey will continue. And she said, and I said, what can I do? Well, how can I make your last days, you know, beautiful and impactful? And she just said to me, there's nothing I really want. I just want what God wants, you know? So whatever people listening believe, God, the universe, nature, you know, higher power. She just said, I just want what God wants. And she had such peace in her heart. And that's when I realized that the key to her true serenity was the depth of her surrender. She had no resistance to what was happening, no resistance to her pain, no resistance to this experience. And I realized in that moment, so much of our suffering in life is happening because we're resisting reality. We're kind of coming at it from the experience that I'm having is not the experience that I should be having. I should be having some other experience. I should be taller, shorter, richer. I should have sold more books. I should be more famous. I should be skinnier. I should be, you know, living in a different place, whatever it is, you know? And so she wasn't even in, in acceptance. And I think acceptance is one level of the game. We, you know, we've got to get into acceptance, but acceptance is kind of passive. You know, surrender is almost like an active, full embrace. Yeah. And, and, and an embrace of the beauty and the blessing, not just, okay, I freaking accept this is happening. It's what it is. You know, I got it. I, I have no choice. Surrender is a cooperation with what's happening and a deep realization that everything is happening for one's highest good and soul's evolution. So when my mother finally passed away, it was such a beautiful, I, I actually got to surrender to the process and defining in that, <laughs> I remember telling her on the final few months, I, I'm so grateful for the cancer because if it wasn't for the cancer, we wouldn't be this close. And if it wasn't for the cancer, we wouldn't have had these moments and these conversations. And obviously there's a regret of why did this have to happen? Why, why did I have to wait to this moment? You know, and that's why I think I'm so passionate as well. It's just, we never know. And so why did I have to wait? So there's only one regret I have in my life you know, as a spiritual teacher, as an author, there's only one regret I have, and that's not spending more time with my mother, you know, in retrospect. And so for me, it's a, it's a beautiful regret that I don't want to lose, 
that really defined my life. It's, it's not a painful regret. It's an expansive regret that inspires me to, to just live life even more fully. And so it really defined, it defined a lot. Yeah, man, that's, that is powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that journey. And yeah, I, the, one of the things that stood out there for me is that concept of surrendering. I, you articulated it just freaking beautifully of how so much of our suffering comes from wanting things to be different and resisting the truth of what actually is. Right. And I think, I think in the, you know, in the personal development space, authentic and inauthentic have kind of been used in, in ways where people don't even really know what they are, right? They've kind of been watered down uh, words that have lost some of their brilliance. But the way that you just articulated it there is like, yeah, when we are being authentic, we are aligning ourselves to what, what really is, what truly is. And we are in some ways, we're being forced to surrender. I've said before on the show, like love sometimes is a forced surrendering, you know, and because you, you like really have no choice sometimes. You're like, oh shit, I love this person. <laughs> I can't do anything about it. Like I'm not my wife. You know? Yeah. Death, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, there it is. I just love this person. Um, but but it also can be, it can also be an allowed surrendering. Yeah. And I feel like that's what you're talking about. And that's that's hard, man. So can can you maybe just unpack a little bit more about how that's how did you allow yourself to surrender into that? And like, what did your mom teach you about that? Because it seems like she was this beautiful. Uh, my mother, yeah, my mother, you know, she's just my mother. So, you know, as a kid, ah, my mother, you see her cooking and it's just my mother. So I didn't really appreciate that she was a bodhisattva. I didn't appreciate that she was like this enlightened being because she's just my mother but you really get to see where someone's at. And I realized that my mother always had a deep trust in the universe. She had a deep trust that, and it wasn't spoken, it was just the way she lived her life. She trusted that something was happening. She trusted something bigger than her own small little ego plan and idea for her life. You know, and I could tell you stories as we go on, but there was this underlying trust that the universe is working, working things out on her behalf. The, the universe knows what it's doing. The universe is, is good in a sense and is unfolding something. And, and so that was, that was just there. It was, it was just there, you know. And so for me, I saw my mother live in a way her whole life where it wasn't just about what do I want for my life? What is my little sense, my ego? I want the car. I want the house. I want this idea. The idea of what I, I this small I, think my life should look like. And then I'm going to kind of force life to fit into this small concept of how I think my life should look like. And maybe I, I might even manipulate and force things to, to be that way and, and kind of maneuver, manifest my life to be that way. But many times I found that sometimes you achieve everything you thought that you wanted, even then to still be miserable, you know? And many times you might get everything you thought you wanted to realize it's not what you really wanted, it's just what you thought you wanted based on who you thought you were, which is just a conditioned kind of personality, you know? That's based on our childhood and our programming, our pains and our traumas and our reactions and our grandparents and our generations that's been passed down. So sometimes what we, our impulses and our desires aren't even ours, you know? 
And then we set up a whole life. And so what I realized with my mother is that it wasn't her life. She had a recognition that my life is not my life. There's something bigger than myself that's been around for years. God, consciousness, universe, life, intelligence. It's, it's, it's living and breathing. It's been around for billions of years. And I think she had a, a deep trust in that more than just her own personality stuff. You know, I mean, she had some of her own, you know, like we all the human issues. And there was always a deep desire to, in her terms, do God's work, a deep desire to be of service to humanity. I think one of the other reasons we suffer is not just because we, res we resist reality, it's because we're constantly fixated and focused on ourselves. You know, me, my, what can I get? And we create, we kind of contract in and off in, in ourselves and it becomes a very limited reality. And I think with my mother, her whole life, I saw this woman live it. It was all I knew. So I didn't think it was anything special until she passed away. I saw her live her entire life in service. She was surrendered, in her words, to God's will. She was surrendered to not just what do I want, what is life seeking to express through me? And I think that's the, that's the shift in the question we have to make if we're going to move from kind of living a good life to a great life is what do I want? the small eye versus what does life want and kind of opening up, surrendering, opening ourselves to actually listen and attune and then align our actions with the bigger impulse, you know, that the inspiration, the guidance, the intuition to move to a different country, to, to, to end the relationship, to, to launch that business, to speak up and, and, and represent a community, you know, that's maybe uh, underrepresented. And so sometimes what we're guided to do is bigger than us and it's scary as hell and we don't know how we're going to do it. And I saw my mother always say yes to that. She realized that her life wasn't her life. Her life was in service to something more. And I think she was able to tap into a courage and an impulse and something beyond herself that was always guiding her in that. Mm. So do you feel like, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so powerful what you're saying first and foremost, but do you feel like her heritage in some way, because when I was doing research on you, you know, the online stalking thing that, that we all do before, <laughs> before we have guests on the show, uh, what was interesting is that your, your mother is Japanese in heritage. Yes. And your father is, uh, is. Ghana. Yeah. So, so, so that's crazy. Look how they met in a short version. Cause I think it relates to this conversation is my father, you know, look, my first memory, that's just a little background. So people aren't confused. Yeah, please, please. I was born in Ghana, West Africa. My father, my, my, as you said, my father's from Ghana. My mother's Japanese. I grew up in London. Now I live in LA, travel the world. So I'm from everywhere. Uh, but uh, my first memories as a young boy were two things. I always felt this deep calling to serve people from a young age. But literally my first memory, five, six years old, chubby kid in Ghana. And I remember seeing this crippled woman crawling on the floor. She picks up the sand that this man walks on, wipes it on her face and stands up. The type of stuff you see on, you know, on the television. Week after week, I grew up seeing uh, blind people see and deaf people hear and People stand up out of wheelchairs. My, the man who sang she picked up was my father. He would look at a woman in a wheelchair and say, stand up, you're not sick. 
but I'm sick. Stand up. Do you believe? Well, if you believe, stand. If you really believe, why are you sitting down? And so week after week, I grew up seeing these, I was going to say crazy miracles, but at the time, it just seemed normal. It was just my reality. Hey, watch television, eat, you know, eat some cookies, see some miracles. I mean, this was all, all I knew. You know, this was just my reality. So this man was my father. He had 300 churches in Ghana, West Africa, was considered the sort of miracle man of Africa, especially in the, in the, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, was mega. And so when my father was, you know, probably you know, in, in the 70s, in his late 30s, thereabouts, uh, his first wife passed away, had three kids. He was in a bookshop in Ghana, in a third world country. A book falls off the shelf. He looks, when he was eight years old, he would have these visions of a Japanese guru, basically. That's what happened as a, as a young African kid. This guy would come to my father in his dreams and teach him about life and the mysteries and, you know, the cosmos, the universe. My father became a minister at 15, basically started healing at 15. At age, age 18, started his ministry. It exploded hundreds of thousands of people. He's 37, fast forward, book falls off the shelf. He sees the face of this Japanese guru, this Japanese guru who he had been seeing since he was age eight, didn't know was a real guy. He's shocked. He writes to this man in Japan. The man sends his son-in-law to meet my father. They didn't have email at the time. Sends his son-in-law to meet my father in Ghana. The man, the, the son-in-law is so blown away, invites my father to meet the guru in Japan. <laughs> And says, we want you to go on a lecture tour with the guru. This is an amazing story. You guys have an amazing connection. My father says, I'm definitely, I accept your invitation, but I'm also looking for a wife. Uh, please pray for me. And so the man says, no problem. The son, the son-in-law of the Japanese guru goes back to Japan, gives a talk. In the talk, my mother, who was about 28, 29, happens to be in the talk. This Japanese man was her spiritual teacher. She grew up in this spiritual kind of organization. She was not married at the time. In Japan, if you're not married by 21, 22 years old, it's over, you're old, forget about it. She had suitors, she had opportunities. She didn't feel it in her heart. She didn't feel the connection. So she said, if I don't feel it, I'm not getting married. One day she made a prayer of surrender. It wasn't like my husband has to be like this. You know, these days we have, we have your list and he's got to look like this and he's got to be six foot tall. He's got to have this education. He's got to, none of that. She threw all of that out the window and she said, God, universe, I surrender. I surrender my idea for my soulmate. Just let me know that when he shows up without a shadow of a doubt, that this is my destined soul partner in this lifetime. I, don't, I let go of all limitations of what he's going to be, where he's going to be from, what he's going to look. I just let go. I trust, you know, look, she said, basically, I trust that the universe, you know what you're doing, Okay. And I think it's funny because many times we try and tell the universe what should be and how life should be. And the universe made everything, you know. And so she surrenders. She's in the audience as she hears about this African man. She says she feels chills in her body. This is my husband. She has this strong knowing in her being. She writes to my father. My father's in London. He's meditating. God says, your wife's going to come to you tomorrow. A letter shows up in his mailbox. It's from Japan. My mother's basically, you know, very conservative. She's just, I look forward to hearing you speak in Japan. My father writes to her and he says, would you be open to moving to Ghana? Kind of a semi-proposal. She writes back, mind you, she doesn't speak any English. So through a translator, she writes back and says, if it's God's will, he writes back and says, if it's God's will, please marry me. They agree to get married. My father goes to Japan, cut a long story short. 
ends up getting married, doesn't have any money for a wedding, doesn't tell anyone, goes on this lecture tour, crazy lecture tour, talk about surrender, crazy lecture tour with a Japanese guru. Unbeknownst to him or anyone, my father then goes to his mailbox, getting ready for his wedding, doesn't have money for a Japanese wedding, opens an envelope, anonymous donation, uh, $7,000. In the, in the envelope is 7,000 US dollars, says this is for your wedding. So that's, that's sort of surrender in, in practice. And so I think many times we have an idea of who we think we should be and how we think our life should look like. And I think we sometimes end up limiting what life can do through us with our concepts and our ideas. We end up kind of thinking, oh, this is what it's going to be when the universe is, is, is when we surrender that I think we tap into grace. We surrender our limits, our concepts, our ideas, our plans that we actually open to something more. And I don't think, you know, I'm not saying just sit there and do nothing, sit there and watch television, sit there and eat Doritos, sit there and eat kelp chips. I'm saying do everything you can in your power, but don't get attached to the end outcome. Don't get attached to how it's going to be. Don't get attached to who the money is going to come from, where the blessing is going to come from, where the publishing is going to come from. Don't get attached. It's just do your part. Give everything to eat. And that's what I saw my mother do. That's what I saw my father do. That's how I've really endeavored to live my life is, you know, I think life is way God. The universe is way bigger than our small plans, you know? And, and when we let go, then we tap into grace. And, and I think when we really live that way, we transcend limitations. I call it like a, a soul math where, where two times two is no longer four and four times four is no longer 16. It's when we really op- we open to the zone of the miraculous. So look at Gandhi and Mandela and, you know, uh, Mother Teresa. They, they, they went beyond themselves. They went in, in, in surrendering and going beyond themselves. They tapped into the force of nature, you know. Mm. And that's mm. where magic happens. Where many times... We want the magic, but we don't want to surrender. We were like, I, 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 universe, give me the magic. We, we I, I'm, going to hold on, I'm going to hold on to this shitty relationship. I'm going to hold on to this, you know, terrible job that I hate. I'm going to hold on to these friends that, you know, are toxic, but I want the magic. It doesn't work that way. So I'd ask everyone, what do you need to let go of? Many times we get to a place in our life where the life that we've created is way too small for what our soul is seeking to become. But we hold on out of fear, out of familiarity, you know, uh, out of because it's just the known. And, and I think we end up limiting our lives. And I think holding on to what is no longer working is actually coming from fear. And holding on to what's no longer working is actually our affirmation in our lack of trust in the universe. So you can do mantras, meditation, visualizations, pray, you know, all these techniques, you know, manifestation, you know, techniques, visualizing, but your real affirmation is what you're holding on to more than anything. And so I think uh, one thing we can do to begin surrendering is looking at what's no longer in alignment with our life. What's no longer in alignment with who we are, who's no longer in alignment with, with what we're truly seeking to become. And then, let that go because when we let go, we actually clear the space for life to show up. And so it's a surrender to something more. It's a surrender to something bigger. I think many times we think if I surrender, then I'm going to be homeless. Or if I surrender, then I'm not going to make any money. Or if I surrender, then life's not going to work out how I thought I wanted it to work out. I'm proposing, well, what if you really let go of your small idea and really surrender and cooperate with the universe 
life may end up way beyond what you could imagine. Yeah, so so good. And I, you know, I think one of the things that that stood out for me as you were speaking was this concept of the field of the miraculous. You know, I, I love, I love that. Maybe that should be like your next book, just like tapping into the field of the miraculous, because it sounds like what you're really talking about is how you start to create that field, and that surrendering is this is this you know beautiful access point that allows us to start to enter into the the field of miracles you know einstein said there are two types of people in the world the people that don't believe in miracles and the the people that believe that absolutely everything is a miracle and and it takes the act of surrendering right and this is i think an essential part of faith and faith is very you know ubiquitous with religion it kind of has that that you know religion has its hooks in it a little bit and so people are very not not restrictive but they're they're very hesitant to practice faith in surrendering, to practice faith in uh, being able to let go of the things that they know aren't working for them so that, that what, what is working, what is true, what they want to attract can actually start to flow to them. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, you know, growing up in that environment, if you, if you sort of fast forward to, you know, little you, you know, as a, as a kid, growing up around these miracles, growing up around this uh, you know, sort of belief system. How did that shape your view of the world and and create what's possible if, for for what you do now? Look, I'll be honest. I didn't think there was anything special about it. You know, I mean, like, I don't know what your parents were like, but you know, if your father was an accountant or a mechanic or a CEO, it's just you know, hey, my dad does business. He runs a company. You know, numbers. It's just normal profit and loss. I have some, some, some friends that their fathers are, you know, CEOs and business people. So profit, loss, numbers, this, that, calculations. It's just normal to them. So seeing someone stand up in a wheelchair, I grew up without a sense because I didn't know anything else, that there was anything else. And so what shocks me is that people didn't believe it, you know, that, that, that we were so limited to like, what do you mean? The blind can't see and people can't stand up a wheelchair. What, what, what do you mean it's not possible? That it, it was more shocking that people were living such sort of limited lives than sort of these miraculous lives. And so there was nothing miraculous about how I grew up. It was just the nature of what is. But, you know, people go, oh, mir- miracles. I was going to say something else, but I want to say this. Are miracles oh, is it really possible or something special? It's not anything special. Let's get this straight. There's nothing special about someone standing up. No, if people, people don't, don't believe in miracles, I want to take the most skeptical person who's like, I don't believe in a miracle. I say, here's a mirror. Look at your freaking self. Look at yourself that you are this being. Like, where do you exist here, here, where do you, something is looking out of those eyes right now. There is something that is digesting your food right now. Somehow you and I, we can, you can eat a piece of fish or a kale or a banana. How is it that this banana, you eat the banana and your hand doesn't turn into a banana? How is it that you eat the banana and your nose, you know, you, you eat a fish and your nose doesn't turn into a fish? There's some intelligence, you know, the same intelligence as functioning the sun, the stars, the moon, the universe, seven billion people orchestrating this entire universe, galaxy, you know, whatever you want to call it, this, this intelligent consciousness 
that we are all really a part of, that even when this body is gone, it's still functioning, that our true essential nation. So if you just go inside yourself, if we go inside ourselves and just study the nature of what I am, what is happening in here, there are literally trillions of processes happening in this body alone to, to you know, if anyone's watching or listening or, you know, via audio or video, just wiggle your hands, you know, it's like, how the hell does that happen? We take it for granted, yeah, I wiggle my hand, but how does that happen? It's amazing. It's just like, it's mind blowing, you know, when you make love with, you know, the man or woman that you love, you know, and, and there's this, there's not only the sensation, there's a feeling, there's emotional connection, psychic connection, energetic connection, orgasm. I mean, it's like, wow. I mean, if that's not a freaking miracle, like every moment is a miracle. You look outside and there's trees growing and there's a sun and this, it's a miracle, but somehow we don't see. So for me, I always like to start with everything really is a miracle. It's just your perception. It's just often we're not seeing as that. And so, you know, even when my mother passed away, it became less about the extraordinary things and more about the ordinary moments. Like those ordinary moments were truly extraordinary. And I was humbled to realize that so often I chased the extraordinary moments, helicoptering, you know, being in Co- you know, Kofi P in Thailand, some special island with some blue ocean. And here I was with my mother watching her butter bread going, this moment is extraordinary. It, it, it's never, it, it may never happen again. And how precious it is, but our attention isn't there, you know? And so for me, the miraculous opportunity is observing where is my attention? What am I always thinking? And bringing your attention back to just really observing the nature of what is, the nature of who we are. If we would just observe ourselves Truly observe, not judge for a day, you'll be astounded because you and I, we're not, you're not sitting here, I'm not sitting here after having breakfast going, okay, intention, digest, digest, digest. It's just happening. Something's happening. And I think the more we can get into, into relationship with what is happening, that's happening all the time, whether we're aware of it or not, we bring ourselves into a miraculous zone. You know, it's the miraculous zone that is the fabric of life itself, you know? And so that's what I saw after being around miracles and, you know, growing up with a father that I saw miracles, crazy, you know, miracles happening every Sunday. One of my challenges as a young man, if I'm to be very honest, became I started seeing a lot of his followers you know, there's about 6,000 people every Sunday in my father's church becoming kind of dependent on this man performing these miracles. And I saw people not wanting to take full responsibility for their own miraculousness, for their own power, for their own magnificence. Hence my book, You Are the One, you know, it's like, no, you're the one, not him or anyone else or some teacher or some guru, you, there's a miracle in you. And and, and so as a young boy, I kind of, Acknowledge these miracles, but started investigating who am I? What is this? What is this mechanism? What is going on? And just observing nature and life, started to see the miraculousness of the whole interconnectivity of life. And uh, it just it blew my mind, you know, it really blew my mind. And so 
I just wanted everyone to realize that we're, we're, all, we're, we're all miracles. They're available every moment, every second of every day. And, and I think it's, it's how we live, you know, to live in that. I think the true, to me, people talk about enlightenment. It's some, oh, enlightenment, you had your mind blown. Oh, wow, wow, I feel connected to some samadhi state. But the reality is, I think really true enlightenment is, is the awareness that everything is miraculous. You know, the awareness of the inherent miraculosity of everything and every moment and being in that state of, wow, you know? And, and so I think starting there, you know, to really get into a deep appreciation of oneself, a deep honoring of oneself. And so I started challenging, you know, my father's congregants as a young boy. You saw, how was it as a young boy, you asked me? I started challenging some of these people and saying, hey, it's not out here. Don't look to the miracles, take responsibility. Even Jesus said, the things that I do, you can do. Jesus, it's in the Bible, folks. Jesus didn't say, I'm Jesus, everybody. I'm the big, the big cheese Jesus, and I'm the only one that can do this. It says, the things I do, you can do, and more. So he was, you know, putting the power, you know, if what he said was true, putting the power back in, in our hands. That wait, wait a second. So we have to acknowledge our power. We have to acknowledge who we are. But I think sometimes it's easier, you know, to point the finger at Jesus, at Buddha, at, at Muhammad, at Bruce Lee, at Bob Marley, at Oprah, and go, they're the, you know, uh, Mandela, Martin Luther King, they're the special ones because... Now we don't have to be responsible for the miracle that we are. Now we don't have to really take responsibility for, I, I'm, there is greatness inside of me too. When I say greatness, I'm not talking about you and me as a personality. As personalities, there's no such thing as perfection. But the true greatness is our spirits. You know, the true greatness is our, is our soul, our true essence. And so that became a point of challenge for me. And, you know, I was ordained. I started speaking in my father's church when I was eight. And I was ordained at 14. And I was, you know, I was kind of given the mandate. I was the guy, I was the young guy who was going to take over. No pressure. You know? yeah, no pressure, no pressure, no pressure whatsoever. Young kid, you know, and I was very passionate, but my, 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 my beliefs, you know, around miracles and some of this stuff and was, was a little different. And, and so it started rubbing some people, challenging some people. But I knew when I was ordained at 14 and my father announced to the congregation, my son is taking over. I knew that this, I, honestly, my heart sank. Because as much as I wanted to help people, I knew this was not my path. You know that feeling you have when you're like, oh, shit, this is not right. You, where you just have this knowing inside, but the entire tide is moving you in the direction, the pressure, the expectation, society. And, you know, the truth is I went along with it because I, was, I wanted to help people. But I was really too afraid at 14 to confront my father. I was afraid if I was truly myself, if I was authentic, if I spoke my truth, I would be, I would lose his love. I would be abandoned. I'd be outcast. I'd be alone. And so for four years, I was a minister. I went along with it. And I loved helping people, but uh, I knew it was not the right decision. And at 18, I had to make a decision. I looked into my future. And at 18, I looked into my future, man. And I saw I could be successful by everyone else's standards. Everyone else's standards. You know, I had this foundation, I have this platform, but if I don't have myself, then what do I have? You know, what, what, what do I have if I don't have myself at the end of the day? And I realized you can't be truly fulfilled and happy living someone else's version for your, for your life. 
And then I looked in the unknown and I felt my soul calling me in a totally different direction. And I, I knew the path I had to take. And that's when I had to surrender again. And part of the surrender was I had to make a decision at 18, whose life am I living? Am I going to live for my father? Am I going to live for everyone else? Am I going to live for, for all the expectations of everyone else and be miserable inside? Or am I going to truly take responsibility for my life? And I think that's when life starts shifting, when we're willing to take responsibility and face the consequences of your actions. And that's when I had to surrender. I had to let go of my father. I had to let go of his approval, his, his value. I had to basically let go of having a relationship with him. And I had to make peace with the worst. I think many times we feel a deeper truth in our hearts, but out of fear, we lie to ourselves. One of the things that keeps us stuck are all the ways that we lie to ourselves, we BS ourselves, we don't tell ourselves the truth. You know, maybe I'm in a relationship and I've been in it six years and she's nice, you know, nothing's wrong. But deep down, we know, we know it's not aligned. We know something's not right. Or maybe I'm working a job and, you know, I should be grateful because the book's, Hey, be grateful, but I freaking hate what I do. It's not why I was born. And we, we sort of betray our truth inside out of fear, you know? And, and so I think one of the things that keeps us stuck the most is, is the ways we lie to ourselves. So one of the challenges of things in terms of surrendering that I'd invite those listening in to, to ask is what lies am I telling myself? I really look at what lies am I telling myself and, and be ruthlessly honest. Most of the time, we know. We know when we're BSing ourselves. We know deep down when we're not telling the truth because there's a feeling, there's a sense, there's this kind of a peace that's not there. Even when we tell the truth and it's hard, even though it's hard, there's a deeper kind of calm. You know, when it's easy and it's off, there's not a deeper sense of calm. And so what lies are you telling yourself? Here's a few questions. What lies are you telling yourself? What are you pretending to not know? What is it costing you to live a lie? You know, really feeling what it's costing. Many times we know we're lying, but we don't want to feel the pain. And so we distract ourselves. We social media it away. We shop it away, sex away, eat it away. Whatever it is, distract ourselves from feeling the impact of the lie. Being in a relationship that's not right. Being, working in a job that we have to compromise our values or is not truly an expression of our hearts. And so really feeling the cost of the lie, I think is really, really important as well. And so when I was 18, man, I had the conversation with my father, surrendered everything. I decided nothing is worth my peace. No one and nothing is worth my peace. Uh, and I told my father that I love you, but I'm not taking over your churches. And cut a long story short, we didn't speak for two years. Um, it was rough, very difficult. Sometimes people think when you find your purpose, it's easy. Sometimes when you find your purpose, it's freaking hard, you know? Yep. Uh, and you get tested. And I was tested and I won a green card and the lottery, uh, which was grace, you know? Talk about if you want the magic, you got to surrender. And when I surrendered, the universe opened up. I mean, it was... Seemingly miraculous, but it's what happened. And then I came to the U.S. with two suitcases and $800. And you know what? No one in the country straight to Los Angeles is a young kid. And my journey began. But uh, surrender has been a theme 
You know, that's why I say there's been many uh, pivotal moments in my life. You know, my mother, uh, many others, but speaking to my father and saying, this is my life. There's no one to blame for my life. God's, God is not going to come from the heavens and just pluck me out. You know, Oprah is not going to knock on my doorstep and discover me. You know, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett is not going to show up and say, hey, here's a million dollars you've been waiting. We have to take responsibility. And I said, I'm willing. And that's when I think my life began, when I was really willing to face the consequences of my actions, no matter what, and deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think your, your story and example is so powerful because it, it does it does speak to the consequences. You know, I love that you are willing to bring forward the conversation that you have to had that you had to have with your father because I think that that's in some way whether it is direct whether it's an, you know the person that's eighteen or twenty six or thirty four or fifty or sixty that's wanting to have the conversation that's looking for permission to come out, you know, as gay, to leave the relationship and get divorced, to start the, you know, the business that they've been looking to start, is that somewhere in the in the background, there's this fear that that they won't be accepted. And and oftentimes it's with their parent. And sometimes their parents not there anymore, or the parent is. And so I'm I'm curious if you can just speak to briefly how that relationship evolved. Like what did it look like the two years after? How did you repair? Because I think for so many people it's so common. The first step, you know, before that, I I had to grieve the death of my relationship. And I had to be willing to choose myself because I realized I could act and have a fake relationship with my father. And I would have, and I might get his love, which wouldn't be real love. It would be fake love based on me being fake. So deep down, I would know that the person he was loving wasn't really me anyway. And that would feel terrible. It was just a fake relationship. And then I realized I'm going to have to act my entire life. And that was painful. And so I had to choose myself and my soul and surrender to this is who I am. And what I felt to do with my life was so strong that I realized if I don't surrender to this, I'm going to die. I'm going to basically be, I can pretend, but I'm going to be, dead anyway. And if I don't surrender to this, I'm going to die. So I'd rather fail and die knowing I I was trying to be who I am. You know, at least I would have more peace that way. And so I had to really choose and accept who I am and my path. And I believe every human being has a unique path. I believe that we incarnate into this human experience, not to be perfect, not to do it perfectly, but to learn, grow, and evolve. And, and to me, life is a school. And everyone is our professors. And especially our parents are probably our greatest professors that we have the most lessons, you know, and, and our family members, the most lessons to work through a PhD program with for our soul's you know, evolution. And so uh, I invite people to really sit with, what are your, what are the, if life is a school and you're here to learn lessons, what are the lessons that you are maybe here to learn with your parents? Because if you understand those lessons and you don't just look at the surface, I want their love, but you understand the classroom that you're in with them, it can give you a different viewpoint and perspective in terms of how to relate to them, not just on this ego level, but on the soul level of, oh, wow. What is it I'm really, what is it we're really here to work out? And let me try and work that out. And I realized for me, part of it was 
being myself, be, finding my voice, truly being willing to be courageous. And my father indirectly taught me that. And so I had to choose myself. Then I had to grieve my relationship. I, I was willing to not have a relationship with my father because being anything else was not having a real relationship with him anyway. It was just a fake relationship. So I had to just not bullshit myself, pretend me doing what he wanted was going to have a relationship. And it was a lot of grief. I mean, I cried and I, I surrendered my relationship with him to the universe. I said, universe, I, I might not have a relationship with my father. And it's okay. If that's what it means to be who I am, it's okay. And I felt like I was killing my father. I was disappointing my father. It was so hard. But I had, so I had to grieve it. And, and I really grieved it before. I made peace with it before I even spoke to him. Then I won this green card, and that's when the universe, that's when I thought, okay, something's going on. I'm, I'm on the right path. You know, the universe has given me some clues. I'm on the right path. And then, uh, so we didn't speak for two years. And to be honest, I was, I was mad at my father because I felt like he wasn't supporting me. You know, we didn't have a lot of money, so there was no financial support. There was no emotional support. There was no spirit. There was just nothing. And I was... You know, as an 18, 19, 19-year-old 19 kid, I was resentful and I was mad. And I was, for two years, I was mad, angry, and furious. I was dating a girlfriend at the time. And, you know, relationship brings up stuff. In relationship, she said, I think you're, you're kind of, you might be a little angry towards your father. You know, I'm 19 years old. I'm like, well, thank you very much. This relationship is over. <laughs> and, and, but she was right. She was, she was, you know, she spoke truth. I just wasn't ready to deal with it. And... I remember things in my life not working. Everything was blocked because I was blocked. And I didn't realize how much resentment I had towards my father for not feeling loved and supported and accepted and seen and all of that stuff, you know? And I was living in a tiny little apartment at the time with no furniture, on the floor, trying to follow my dream, you know, making no money, stealing food from the supermarket. And... Uh, one day I had this epiphany. I was just mad at the, I was mad at the world. And, and I realized it, it, it kind of landed on me like this. It was like a, the universe slapped me on the head and just woke me up. And it was this feeling of no one owes you anything. I don't know. It just hit me. I was feeling sorry for myself, blaming my dad for me not be having, you know, anything. And it just hit me like, wait a second. No, but nobody owes me anything. My dad actually doesn't owe me. I mean, it would be nice, but he doesn't owe it to me. You know, he, he, he and it was just this crazy moment of, I know, enlightenment, epiphany of, of wait a second. He doesn't owe me anything. It's not, I'm, I'm, I'm 19 now. Okay, up until 18, he kind of owes me something. Some, now he owes me nothing. Zero. When it hit me, that realization, that responsibility, it was a profound moment. And I realized that I was keeping myself stuck. I realized I, I, there were so many payoffs. Like by me blaming my father, I didn't have to take responsibility for my life. I didn't have to. I could just sit here and go, it's his fault and kind of blame my reality. So I had to give up blaming him. And I had to honestly process through feel experience, acknowledge my pain, my hurt, my sadness, my anger towards my father, and, and, and choose to let it go. And I realized 
Sure, I didn't have the relationship I wanted with my father, but I also started realizing how much he did give me. I started realizing he was there in certain ways, maybe not the ways I needed or wanted, but he was there in the ways and showed love in the ways he could. And I, I remember really making a choice through my own tears and pain to forgive my father because I realized how much I loved this man. And even though he wasn't what I wanted, I loved him. And I remember forgiving him. I just one day forgave my father, no communication with him. I kid you not, this is no BS. The next day, the next day, when I had this cathartic moment and I'm crying and I'm forgiving him and you know, letting him go, he calls me after two years, calls me up and he said, uh, I, think we, I think we need to speak, you know? I think we need to, that's when I realized, whoa, like something had shifted in me since we're all interconnected. Maybe his soul felt it because I think we're all interconnected on some level. And, 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 and there was a shift, you know? And so for me, I forgave not for him. I forgave to free myself. And in free myself, I think it created the space. I had to surrender my righteousness. I had to surrender my being right. And I, I felt like I was right, but I had to let it go. And I had to ask myself, <laughs> I want to be right or I want to be happy? Do I want to be right or I want to be free? And, and once I chose my true freedom, it created a shift. And over the years, we've, we've built a beautiful, beautiful relationship, you know, and, and we're very close now. Very close nice. now. So it's evolved. Right. And I think, you know, the respect level has grown and I've kept my own integrity. And there's nothing as spiritual and nothing as freeing as living in your own integrity. People can talk about, you know, you can talk about meditation and Sanskrit and yoga and this and that. But for me, real spirituality is living in your integrity, living in alignment with your truth, your deepest truth in this moment, right or wrong. To me, that, that's a spiritual moment, you know. Mm -hmm. And so uh, yeah, it's been a beautiful journey with this man. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's so, I mean, what's interesting as the objective listener for me is like, man, that's such a, uh, 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 an important part on the hero's journey. You know, like every man at some point needs to be able to find his own path yes. and reconcile with his father and be able to claim what is truly his for him, not because of his dad. I mean, I had to do the exact same thing. I went into opera to as a, and became a singer to try and build this relationship with my father because I saw it as an access point because he was a singer and and I got down the path of being this classical singer in China and Europe and whatnot and and I had the same realization this like you know big sort of wake up call and spiritual punch to the face I guess you could say where I realized like oh I'm I'm living this life to try and build this understanding and relationship with my father. And I need to let it go and I need to surrender and not know what's going to be on the other side and not know what my identity is going to look like or my career or any of those things, but just to let it go and go live the life that is truly mine to claim that for myself and no one else. And I think, you know, it, it brought up a question because, you know, you, you wrote this incredible book, um, which is you are the one and I think just to go back before you were talking about 
some of the pieces that, that we all have to embark on to become our authentic versions, to really claim what's ours in our life. In, in our life. And I know that we're sort of short on time. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that if you can just unpack a few of the, the lessons uh, in the book, there's some of the lessons that, that allow us to start to get into this direction, because I think, and you've been doing it beautifully the entire time. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I think that there are some things that get in the way for people to be able to embark on this journey. I'm, I'm wondering if you can just sort of unpack what some of those things are. And, and Yeah, just... I, I think I have actually in the last few moments touched on a few of the, 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 the beginning points of just, look, yeah. do anything. And, and many times we, you know, we look to the Gandhis, the great ones, this person, that person, think, oh, they're going to do it. And the realization is, no, they're not. You're here. You, no one's coming. You know, the whole point is no one's coming. We all have the responsibility in the gift to share our gifts with the world. And so for me, the book, without kind of going back to some things I said, the book uh, was kind of a combination of a bold challenge and invitation for readers to say, hey, the world needs you. Like what, the world needs your unique voice, your unique expression, your unique purpose more than ever right now. And if you've been born at this crazy, amazing, unique time in human history where old systems are collapsing, old politics, old economics, old educational model, old technology is disrupting as all these systems are falling apart more than ever. You know, I believe that we're living in perhaps the time of greatest change, but also a time where, you know, we've had the technological, we've, we've had the industrial revolution. I think we're in the midst of the amazing spiritual revolution that's happening right now and that we've been born. If you've been born right now, you've been born for a reason and a purpose to share those gifts and the world's waiting for us. And so I think we, 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 I wanted the book to be a bold invitation to each person to step up and, and share their light and share their gifts and share their creativity. Because the fact is many people say, well, you know, it's been done before. Or, yeah, but it hasn't been done like you're going to do it. You know, so-and-so said it. Yeah, but it, you're not so-and-so. And I think, I believe our dreams choose us for a reason because everything you've been through, your story is different from my story. Everything, you know, you've been through every experience, every pain, every trauma, every hurt, every abuse, every conversation, every success, everything has perfectly engineered you and I to be the ones to share our message and share our gifts and build that business. So I believe our, your dream chooses you. And I think, our job is to get ourselves out of the way. And the more we can really get ourselves out, say yes, and get ourselves out of the way, that's when magic happens. That's when the universe flows. That's when, you know, that's... And, and I think, wow, what if, what if Martin Luther King didn't give his gift, you know? And he said, you know, which he tried to do, like, oh, I want to live, live a nice life, you know, in Alabama or Montgomery, wherever it was, and just have my kids and wife or Mandela said, no, I'm going to just kind of do my thing over here and not go to prison for 26 years or mother Teresa. What if they didn't give their gift? I think would the world be different? And so I said, well, what if you listening, everyone listening, what if you don't give your gift? The world will be different. Even if it's one person who affects 5,000, 5 million, or, or you affect 50 million, the world will be forever altered by you not giving your gift. And so I believe that's why we're here, you know, to give those gifts. So good. So good, man. Well, I want to be respectful of time and 
think we've got we to wrap up here, unfortunately, but I would love to have you back on the show because I feel like so much of what you're talking about ties into purpose and ties into you know, our area of genius and, and the gifts that we do have to give to the world. And so maybe that's, maybe that's for part two. <laughs> oh, dude, we're just warming up, man. <laughs> we, did, we were, we were, man. Uh, but this has been phenomenal. So thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Yeah, I just want to say one thing to those listening. Please, please, yes. As you listen to this conversation, please don't let this conversation be another nice little podcast interview that you're listening to. Oh, that was nice podcast and man talks. No, I want you to remember this. You, if you want some motivation right now, remember this. You are going to die. That's right. You are going to die. How's that for motivation? And feel, so I would invite you, not as a morbid thing or a negative thing, but as a bold wake-up call to really feel your death each day. Don't hide from it. Each day, make, like, you know, bring death close to you. Feel death in your heart. Feel your death as an inspiration to living life. And if there's a conversation you want to have, if there's someone you need to speak to, if there's someone you need to reach out to and forgive, if there's someone you need to kiss, if there's someone you need to commit to, if there's something you need to launch, I would like you to use this conversation as a bold catapult wake-up call to go do it now right now this moment is all we have mm, so good so good and i i love the call to action uh because i think that like like you said there's uh there's too much there's almost like too much at stake right and being able to feel into that being able to feel into the urgency of like yeah we all have a gift that we want to give to the world and and being able to feel into the imminent uh the imminent end I think is incredible. So listen, Coot, thank you so much. I cannot wait to have you back on the show. And, uh, and for everyone that's out there listening, definitely head on over. We're going to have links in the show notes uh, to Amazon so you can check out You Are The One and to, and to Coot's website so you can check out some of the other work that he's doing uh, and, and his podcast, Soul Talks. Do you want to just give them maybe a, a quick little debrief on what, on what your podcast features? Uh, it's just inspiration, man. We're just inspiring people. Every week I share some, some guidance and advice and life wisdoms. And then I have a guest. We've had an amazing guest, Robin Sharma and who else? Ben Greenfield, JJ Virgin, Larry King, Jack Canfield, the list goes on. Great guests, some of whom I'm sure you've had. And we just talk about things that matter. So that's, yeah, that's on iTunes, Soul Talks. And my website is my name, kooplaxon.com. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. For everyone else that's out there, head on over to iTunes, to Stitcher, to Google Play, wherever you listen to us, Spotify. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to share this podcast with just one person who you know would absolutely love it or could use it. So until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.